To quote Uncle Junior, what a fucking blow. We are here at Proshai Lavushka. This is Sopranos Season 3, Episode 2. Feel bad ending. So we're probably done here, right? She's dead. That quote was given by Tony Soprano in a therapy scene in Soprano Season 3, Episode 2, Pro Shia Vushka, written by David Chase and directed by Tim Van Patten. Oh, uh, I don't want that side to make anyone think I didn't enjoy the episode on an artistic level, but Dude. it just doesn't make you feel good things, does it? No. Uh, I'm going to be <laughs> I'm gonna be straight. I'm not even going to wait for you to ask me what I thought. Um, I hate this fucking episode. Mm. I hate it. I, I don't think it's at all incompetent or poorly written or anything. I think it's a beautiful piece of art like every episode of The Sopranos, and I, I, I love it for its significance and its fucking balls. Uh, I think it's a great episode, but um, I hate this episode. I never really want to watch it again. I understand that feeling. I, it, it, it's, it's, it's easily, and we'll talk about why, but it's easily to me the darkest and most sad episode we've gotten so far. I have trouble even articulating what I was feeling in the pit of my stomach when the final credits rolled. It's just a gross, awful, dark, nihilistic episode. And when The Sopranos really goes there, they fucking go there, boy. Paul, any first thoughts on Proshailovska? Yes. Um, if I ever tell either of you that I am taking a class called hypercapitalism in the age of the studio system <laughs> I would like one or both of you to put a bullet in my head noted <laughs> noted yes i uh, so th there is something very dark about this episode but actually right from the beginning i might not be the I, I might be alone in this but i think there is something very darkly funny even about the very first scene with noah and it, but it's all coupled together was that a black joke, Paul? Um, it, not intentionally, but if I get canceled, then um, I might have to apologize in a few days. Got it. <laughs> we'll see. But uh, actually, I think like most Soprano stuff, the darkness and the light is mixed together. It's never completely one thing or the other, though there is a, absolutely a bleak quality to this episode. There's also a lot of very fun stuff. And I think part of it is confronting who Tony actually is. Um, and of course that he's in therapy because of who his parents were and what he's doing now um, as a parent. First season was Tony as a son. Second season was Tony as a brother. This season is Tony as a father. And that's the this is the first inkling that we get of the import of that. Yes, well said. We mentioned in, in our retrospective season two that season one has Tony as son, season two has Tony as brother, and season three is definitely Tony as father. Very perceptive, and that's correct. And the importance of parents and where we come from and what they set as a trajectory for your life are in this episode. And unfortunately, in this world, the answers to that are not good or encouraging. So, <laughs> but we'll get yeah. there. Let's start from the top. Immediately, it's an interesting stylistic start to the episode. So the episode starts with a truck explosion, and, and it's an explosion in an episode that's going to be largely internal and emotional. But this truck thing, the, the garbage thing is heating up that we saw in the newspaper in the last episode. And then we see Tony on the floor, blood, 
this is a gangster show. What happened? Was he shot? Is he okay? What the fuck is this? Was Tony gunned down in his kitchen? No. Nope. And we get that rewind. Uh, it's a broken glass. <sighs> and then we see what happened. And it's the scene with Noah and they're watching public enemy for this class. Yes, Paul. That is, I, I took the time. I, I paused it twice to get the full name of this course down. And uh, yes, it's, it's yeah. Images of hyper-capitalist self advancement in the era of the studio system. Jesus Christ. Anyway, <laughs> but they're watching public enemy, James Cagney. I'll give Tony this one. It is a great movie. I, I really love that movie. I'm a big James Cagney fan. Hard disagree, but we can go into that later. Sure. Yeah, we can talk about it. But it's great for the era. All right. Well, yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so we're meeting this Noah, and this is a great example to me of the Sopranos complexity, because I think in the world of the Sopranos, these blue collar, it, you know, Italian guys, they're very practical in a sort of nuts and bolts sense. And we hear the things that Noah's saying, the class he's taking. Cagney was modernity, and he's just so smug and Ivy League and all this stuff. So we're supposed to have a little bit of an aversion. Oh, yes. Well, he's kind of like the, the, the class he's taking and his behavior towards it. It's almost like a Janusification of film study. And yeah. It's worse because he actually believes it. You know, like, <laughs> oh, fuck this kid. What an entrance. Just what an unlikable character instantly. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting that The Sopranos does this because Tony racially victimizes him in a really awful yes, way. Awful so way. you you have this situation where you, you, you have this character who is very poorly treated and in an inexcusable and racist manner, but also he's a douche already and you don't like he him. He also so. sucks. Yes. <laughs> Both so things are true. I love that they didn't pussy out on that they didn't make him a total like oh it's like the sweet nice guy he's he's a turd and he's definitely like i i wouldn't want my daughter dating him for reasons that have nothing to do with him being black but well, that's what tony should be focusing on ultimately that's where the the racism comes in here right tony right. should never ever ever be commenting on someone's race for any reason in that way <laughs> um, but moreover, there are so many reasons to dislike Noah in the first scene that has nothing to do with his racial background. Yeah. So Tony takes him out into the hallway and, uh, you know, says a lot of things to him that I'm not going to quote. But, you know, uh, but he says this stuff to him and he's very offended, uh, as he should be. And Tony just lays it out very calmly and, and glibly like, hey, you know, I've been associated to a black I don't want their. They don't want my son with their daughters. I don't want their sons with mine. He, he says, "Fuck you." That's just the kind of thing I'm hoping to avoid. So when she comes down, you're going to tell her it was how nice it was to meet me. You're going to drop her off at school, and then you're going to say goodbye. I'm I'm shocked that this that this doesn't work as a strategy. Um, <laughs> a lot. There's a lot to unpack here. Start with the rewinding, which is su such a great little gimmick it's not something that sopranos usually does stylistically but it's fun it it works with the rewinding tape it also means we're looking into the past and we're also getting right into tony's regressive attitude and tony looking at the past as he's going to be in this episode to understand his life and his condition um it's a great setup the stuff with public enemy is cool too i think because it also brings into question this other side of tony there's the two faces thing actually from college 
the episode in season one. Tony is a blue-collar, old-school, parochial gangster with all of his racist baggage on the one hand. On the other hand, I think Tony is in many ways kind of a sophisticated guy and likes history and old movies, even to the point where it seemed like maybe he and Noah were going to have some commonality in mm. their language, like they could have a conversation, which Tony, I think, actually, in his own way, could have entertained. It's not that he would have never wanted to talk to this kid. It's just that he doesn't like the implications of how he meets him, which is another important detail in how this scene is set up. Incredibly important in terms of detail and body language, things that aren't even said. Tony asks Meadow, oh, 42 grand a year to watch old movies? Who's we? And Meadow is defensive, just a friend, okay? Red flag. Tony's not foolish. He gets it. He yeah. gets it doesn't want him to know too much about this. I don't even think she knew he was home. Then the kid comes out. Tony's looking at his hair right mm. away. He keeps staring at his hair and wondering. And of course, right away, he asks, what's your background? All this stuff. Now, because of what Tony says and how he says it to the kid, there's a lot of moralizing that goes on around this scene. I get it. I understand. It's, I think, quite disgusting what he says to the kid. Um, I also do think the scene is written in a fun way. There's, I do think it's funny. I also think the kid's response is fun. I like that he says, fuck you. Yeah. This is also an unforced error. Tony didn't need to do this, and he shouldn't have. And I think Carmel is right that he probably just made it worse because he couldn't shut his fucking mouth. Yeah. Does that remind you of anybody else that we're <laughs> going to be dealing with in this episode? It should. It, this is all very <laughs> deliberate. Also, aside from the question of the morality, which we're going to come back to, of course, that this is going to affect his relationship with Meadow. It's going to affect her relationship with this young man. But think about this show in terms of what Tony is going through and what his life is like. In that respect, this scene is not Tony being this big badass racist. This is the garbage man's ball all over again. Tony can't do all this. He can't hold all this together. He can't be the old school parochial racist gangster and the guy who lives on a hill in North Caldwell who sent his daughter to Columbia, effectively yeah. a yuppie. He can't hold it all together. And that's why he goes in the kitchen and fucking passes out. Yeah. That's an excellent deconstruction, Paul. I really appreciate that perspective. Yes. Paul, I actually appreciated it more hearing you talk about it because my experience watching it was to basically dislike this entire sequence. I actually, I like hearing Paul talk about it because it makes me feel better about it, but I hated the rewind when I was watching it. And for me in total, it didn't stylistically match the rest of the episode. At least hearing Paul talk about how symbolically it makes sense and there are parallels is nice, but I had never seen anything like it on the show before. And then I was looking for the rest of the episode to do something else with rewinding or fast forwarding or pausing or something, but it doesn't. Uh, so I didn't really love that moment. It just felt like a way of making a scene that was already interesting have a more interesting opening. It felt sort of showy to me in a way that I'm not used to the show being. So that frustrated me. But uh, Paul, you did put it a little bit better. I feel better about it hearing Paul speak about it. Um, uh, I can't say anything better uh, in terms of, of the Noah situation, um, so I won't. I will just say that I really appreciate that even in a first appearance of a character that we know is going to have some importance, 
there's multiple sidedness to him, right? He's not just like, hey, I'm a good looking black guy that the show has introduced. Why is Tony going to have a problem with me? Like already he has his own idiosyncrasies and some issues that come up that have nothing to do with his race. And you would have hoped that Tony would have focused on those, but he does not. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. And look, I know uh, this is Tony's most explicitly racist behavior in the show at this point, but is anybody really surprised by this? I, I mean, did, did no. Meadow, did uh, Tony says I, Meadow didn't do you any favors bringing you into this house? I don't know what she, fuck she was thinking. I think Paul hit the nail on the head that I don't know that Meadow knew Tony was even home because certainly she had to see this coming. She had to feel that. And that's why she was so reticent to even say anything to him. But man, yeah, it's, it's a, <laughs> it's just, a, it's a complicated, funny, messy scene for all those reasons that we've discussed. Well, let's move on. Carmela's nursing his wound. He's got ice on it. Or he's, he's holding, or he's got ice on him and he's bandaging up his wound. Panic attack. Then we get this scene. Uncle Ben. Uncle Ben. Yeah, Uncle Ben. That's, a, Uncle that's ben. That was a fun, that's a fun line. <clears throat> I think the most important line that's actually, I mean, other than Uncle Ben, which still makes me laugh, is that at the tail end of this scene where Carmela is nursing his arm i think she wraps it in a bandage she actually walks away and tony is still in his racial resentment i forget i think he uses another racial epithet if one of my sisters ever brought home a blank you know what my old man would do this is actually very important i think in in an odd way because one of the things that I think Carmela said, if you keep playing the race card, you're going to drive hit her right into his arms. Tony says, not if I break off those fucking arms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Tony can't do that, and he's not going to do that. So I think there's a lament, actually, that Tony can't do what his dad did. Yeah. Um, this is another reflection of how the best is over. What Tony's dad probably would have done is either killed the kid or chased him out of the house with, a, with an implement of some kind, yeah. and then passed out on a cigarette machine three weeks later and not known why. <laughs> so Cody is in something of a better position here, but he's still got his blinders on, again, because I think he's got to do this weird two-step. I, I think it is a funny, odd position for him to be in where culturally at some level, even though I don't approve of his attitude, I get it. But what else did he expect, actually? during all those scenes in season two, when he's not preparing for Meadow to go off into the world, she was going to go off to Columbia in the heart of New York city and meet people who look just like her and have the mm -hmm. same religious and cultural background that she does. Yep. I mean, you can't, this is a show about characters who want it both ways and they can't have it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when I, when you said that, Paul, I'm reminded of the scene in uh, season one or season two, rather when AJ is having his existential crisis and uh, Meadow comes in and is like, you want him to be educated? This is education. It's like, you you know, you send your daughter off to Columbia. She's going to interact with douchebags who take images of hyper-capitalist self-advancement in the era of the studio system as an elective. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, you know, yeah, you get what you pay for, Tone. <laughs> but yeah, very well said. There is not much he can actually do. He can make empty threats. He can express his displeasure. But this is an interesting dynamic to throw our main character in. And it's, uh, you know, it's something interesting that isn't going away. So that's for sure. So this next scene, this is a controversial scene in this episode. It's Olivia Jesus CGI. Fucking Christ. Good Lord. 
Go it, on, Chris. Uh, yeah, well, obviously, they spent a lot of money on this effect. I, I don't think, especially by today's standards, it holds oh up. Oh, my God. It's, no. It's, yeah. Heinous, heinously bad. Yeah. Um, I'm so, sorry. I, uh, this, to me, is irredeemable. Yeah. Why do you feel that? Well, let me ask you. Let me let me let me let's have the discussion. I I, I don't agree that it's not. I, I don't disagree that it's. Yeah, I'm not going to sit here and say this is like, oh, man, some great scene. Why do you think they need they felt the need to put this in rather than just have her die off screen? I don't know. You two are better read about the show than me. And, and you know, maybe you'll offer something that I don't know. So before I'm, I'm imagining this, I'm imagining that they were like, Oh my God, we've, we've just lost Nancy and, and she was such a huge presence on the show. We can't just not have any final moment between Tony and Livia. It would be unforgivable. But what's more unforgivable to me is like to render the ghost of this woman in celluloid in the chair and it barely looks like her and her fucking hair changes from shot to sh- What the fuck were they doing? Yeah. <laughs> I think they, they were trying. I, I'm not sure. I, I agree that like, I, I'm not sure why they felt this was necessary. I don't, I don't fault them because doing, I don't know that there was a better way to do what they did. Well, I'll but, make an but obvious why, but why did they Tony just has a quick scene with Svetlana and she's sleeping upstairs. And then the next scene we find out she died. We didn't need a scene live in person. This is some weird fucking shit. Yeah. Paul, do you have any thoughts on the CGI scene? I know it's, it's pretty, shockingly out of place you know uh, yeah i mean I, I my my reaction to it was not as big but again that might be in part because of watching this episode some years ago and and then watching it again maybe just having to like accept it or saying i'm gonna roll with this obviously this looks weird now it, it also looks i used i wrote down dated um yeah. in terms of the effect one thing that was funny to me is that I thought one thing that did work well was all of Livia's lines being old lines because that's who she was. Tony in the pilot called her a broken record. So mm. it's actually not out of place that Tony comes in and she just says, ah, or something, or makes these weird noises. Um, in terms of why the scene is included, I can only think of one thing, which is that in spite of Tony not wanting to in spite of Tony having a lot of anger toward his mother and a lot of resentment and unresolved feelings and saying at the end of the scene, I didn't speak to you for a year. Maybe it was better that way. He obviously still wants something. He obviously is looking for something that he's not going to get. So part of it, he brings his mother Omerta subtle. Um, <laughs> because he's trying to get her to shut up. To keep your mouth shut is what he says about the court case. But the books with the memories for the grandchildren, he is legitimately upset that she has said nothing, that her attitude is, uh, it's, it's none of anybody's business. So Tony at sixes and sevens with this relationship, standing right in front of his mother, and she barely registers it, I think characterizes where we're going to go in this episode because she dies and he doesn't know what to do with it. He doesn't know how to process it. That's the only reason I can think of for this scene being, at least in, in the view of the writers, perhaps necessary, because like Jordan, I felt like it was very, it was jarring. I, I, I kind of wanted to get the fuck out of there. Just cut the scene, David. Just cut the scene. Where was the producer? 
where was the producer just being oh, oh maybe i guess because he was the producer but where is the producer just being like <laughs> david cut the scene just cut the scene have a quick moment with svetlana about the granny remembers thing if that's an important moment to you do not uh summon the ghost of nancy marchand in celluloid footage just don't just don't do it just don't do it yeah well to people who haven't caught on by now and, and weren't familiar with the show. Yes, Nancy Marchand died between seasons two and three. So they were in a little bit of a rock and a hard place. They made a decision that in hindsight may not have been the best. But, you know, sometimes when you make art and you're in weird situations and you have to make a last minute call, you try a risk. They, I know they spent a lot of money on this shot. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, I, I think in the end, with 2020 hindsight, I probably would have cut the scene as well. It's uh, just painful because it's a show that, in my mind, as the novice of the three of us, like the show had never made a real misstep until that moment. And it was the first time I ever watched a scene in The Sopranos. And I was just like, nope, nope, <laughs> I don't buy it. I don't buy the dialogue. I don't buy the look. And God bless James Gandolfini and the actress that plays Svetlana. They really try to sell it the best they can, but it is just... Hmm. It, it ain't it man it ain't it it's tough it's probably also a tribute to Nancy Marchand who was so incredible on this show that there was no recreating this dynamism mm -hmm. that you had when she and Gandolfini were in the room so possibly that, you know again maybe they shouldn't have even tried because it was so special when those two got together yeah. that there might not be any way to really recreate it and there's also something I think fairly obvious, which was that in Livia's last appearance late in season two, uh, just just an observation, Nancy Marchand, I think, was probably already in declining health and had gotten sick. And we've we've all seen people in that condition. I'm not making fun. She had lost some weight, I think, and she had gotten kind of a pallor to her and she was kind of gaunt. And when she reappears in the CGI recreation, she's kind of nice and full and colorful again. And you're like this. This doesn't track for me. Uh, I, I think they were trying to do her honor. I think they were certainly acting with the best intention, but that's what paves the road to hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't always work, it's, you know, uh, but yeah. So two, two, two seasons and two episodes in, they, they, made, they, they fucked up, but I think it only goes up from here, which is the good news. So <laughs> uh, at least as far as this episode is concerned. So we, we recover from that. She didn't do the baby journals. Tony's telling her not to testify about the airline tickets. And Meadow comes in. Tony's watching Public Enemy by himself. Is my laundry done? I know you said something to him. Tony says, basically, you know, keep it moving. <laughs> don't, 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 don't ask. And maybe you didn't understand me. Maybe if I say it in Swahili. Yuck. <laughs> he's kind of playing a role here, isn't he? Isn't he kind of doing an Archie Bunker? Isn't yeah. He? That's kind of what's going on here with this kind of dialogue. Yeah. And, and I think he's doing like the, the dad thing. Like, don't push my buttons on this yeah. unless you don't, don't, don't make me say it is basically the undertone here. Fun and funny, actually. Yes. Yes. He also, I think, again, there is a fatherly kind of concept here, but I think there's something regressing in his mode he's leaned back in the chair he's kind of sniping at her they also come to like kind of a mexican standoff there's like a stare down and they both are just quiet 
And it's, mm-hmm. uh, it felt to me a bit more like siblings arguing, actually, and are we going to go to a neutral corner? And certainly that's the smart way Carmela's playing it, because I think Carmela deliberately says to Meadow, come up here and let me get your laundry or whatever. Like, just get these, like, these two need space yeah. right now. So that's the way I felt about that scene and the two of them relating in that way. It's, it's very awkward. Tony actually, I think, makes a deliberate decision to back off a bit at least as far as she's concerned. And then in the next scene, everything changes. Yeah. So Tony goes outside, fucks with his sprinkler in his garden a little bit, comes back in and the family's standing there. I've seen that stand when people kind of know something and they, they have to tell you. And uh, he walks back in and there's a tone shift in the house. There's a f- feeling in the air. Carmela breaks the news. Your mother died in her sleep. And this moment is so good. Yes. That was so real. It was so yeah. real. Yep. Meadow, so says, real. Meadow says, sorry that your mom died. She had make, make sure that put that little add on even in this moment. Tony sits down the immediate idealizing. Hey, she loved you too very much. You know, I did she, I don't know, <laughs> but Tony, it's, it's the thing you say, right? When, when the grandmother dies and Tony uh, is visibly shaken, he has to sit down. Very real. And then it, it, it kind of, this tone continues. We get this very creepy shot. It, it, the, the shot stuck with me, even uh, of the ambulance, just the Verona ambulance pulling out of the driveway, driving down the street. And then you just yeah. get these like kids and this little dog in shadow watching the ambulance pull away. Very dark, creepy shot. Uh, I liked the composition of it. It really stuck with me. Uh, yeah, I got a little chill up my spine watching it, and I just got the same chill now. It's um, super real. Yeah. You know, you know, it is, this is not a big drama moment. This is this is where death happens. Death happens in the little in-between spaces in life, and you're caught off guard, and nothing seems as it should. It is yeah. just, it, they did it really well. And the fact that Livia herself is such a dragon-like presence over this series, she really is this queen dragon character of of mythological proportion uh, in season one, especially. She's carted away in an ambulance like everyone else down this lonely Verona street off to the coroner. Mm. In a, you know, it's just like, there it is. There's life and death. There's what, there's what Livia amounted to ultimately. Like, like we all will. It's um, uh, we find out it was a massive stroke. They uh, go inside, talk to Svetlana. We get this very fun scene. I'm excited to talk about this with uh, with Paul and and Jordan. The uh, AJ is reading Robert Frost. I, I, <laughs> I remember this. I remember this exact poem actually from high school. Yeah. Um. I I, did, I read a lot of Robert Frost in high school and. Uh, you know, fucking asshole Robert Frost, AJ throws the pick. <laughs> <laughs> and Meadow comes in and helps him. Uh, this is a fun little scene. And I like that Meadow kind of spells it out for him. And and yeah, there's a lot of funny exchanges here. And what does snow symbolize? Christmas? Like AJ just has no idea. Can you just give me the fucking answer already so I can finish this? Yeah. Uh, I love the choice of poem because I think we've, we've all had to study stopping by uh stopping by woods on a snowy evening at, at one point. So I think yeah. it was, it was sort of a societal touchstone. It was just nice to return to that poem for a moment. And of course, appropriate to what happens in this episode. Um, Paul, you, you had a really nice take on this poem in the pre-show. Do you want to just talk about this a bit? I think it was Chris as a matter of fact. Oh, was it Chris? I'm sorry. What did I say? 
Doesn't even remember Russian when he's being brilliant. What? Uh, sim- white and black symbolism. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, the the whole idea. Yeah, it, it touches on the racial tension in the episode. The white and black. I thought black was death. White too. Uh, so that's kind of a playful way to add that into the to to the episode as well. And and also, this was a great poem. I, I, these. What's fun about the shit you read in high school that you dread? At least I did. I wasn't. What's funny is I love reading, but not when I have to. And <laughs> so like I go back and read shit from high school that I dreaded reading at the time. It's like, oh man, I see why this is a classic. This is really good. But at the time it's like, fuck, I would rather be doing anything else. But you know, I, so I enjoyed the poem. I think it's a good choice by, by uh, David Chase to include it here. And then we get this cool moment after with um, AJ going out in the hall. And I just wrote down in my notes, oh, there are ghosts in that hallway. Uh, yeah. yeah. Gra- Grandma, he asks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, little chill up the spine. I, I think in that moment, perhaps she was there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I want to touch back on this later on at a very particular. Yes, I, mean, I think she's there the rest of the episode, of course, um, as is Big Pussy, at least for a moment. And part oh, of Livia yeah. was always, part of Livia was always the shadow that she casts. And that becomes more and more a character. I think even as this episode continues. Mm. Well said, uh, but AJ, she tells him the poem. He re- when he realizes that it's about death. AJ just says that's fucked up. Very funny. <laughs> and then uh, Tony's on the phone with Barb, the sisters. Uh, Barb is yeah. going to tell Janice and we find out that Olivia didn't want a service, but we should all kind of get together anyway. Call Janice. Okay. We have a toast of vodka in the mother's house. She's uh, we Svetlana drops the title on us. Proshai Lavushka. Carmel asks what that means. Goodbye, little Livia, which is a sweet way of putting it, but also juxtaposed against how she felt because she loomed like even though goodbye, little Livia, she was a little woman in stature, but she was loomed large over the entire proceeding here and will continue to over her death. Then we get the scene at home. Sil, Pauly. Christopher, the boys are there. And, uh, you know, we all know how much you loved her and they're exchanging the platitudes and Tony drops this. Not the first time the characters are going to say this. Thank you. What are you going to do? At least you didn't suffer that stuff. So, yeah, this is this is the unanimous, uniform, lived experience of anyone who has ever been who has ever lost someone. What what do you say at the wake? What do you say at the funeral? It's just the same sort of banalities over and over and over again. And um, it almost enters like Dada after a while. Just they, they come to mean nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tony feels the weight of that as the episode sort of progresses. And um, I'll, I'll speak more about this as we get to other scenes. But like it, it the episode starts to get really depressing about now. Yeah. Well, almost right now, because I laughed my ass off at the next scene when uh, Carmela's parents come in. How's Tony handling it? And he's screaming at Barb on the phone because Janice won't come. <laughs> then we get this fucking scene with Janice. We see what Janice has been up to. She's shacked up with this guy who's a in, like a kid. He's like 21, maybe. Uh, and they're wearing some kind of uniform and he doesn't want to. He's like, so my boss tells me I got to work on Columbus Day weekend. <laughs> she's like eat your eggs baby in a wink it's like oh what the fuck Janice <laughs> what the fuck are you doing she's already got a new mask on and she's got another guy wrapped around her finger 
Yeah. yeah, it's unbelievable. It's so fucking funny, but I love how fast she works. And, you know, it's like, and, and fiance, we find out when Tony calls her, this is not a boyfriend. This is a fucking fiance. She's engaged Janice to is, this kid. Janice is fast, man. <laughs> so funny. So funny. Uh, but they have a great phone call. Tony convinces her to come. She says, there's good reasons I shouldn't be in the state of New Jersey. Tony drops a line that I laugh at every time. That case is colder than your tits. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, such a funny thing to say to your sister. She has the whole thing mapped out for us working folk. Woody, oh, Woody Guthrie over here. And uh, she, she so but, you know, she did check the prices and she she knew by telling Barb she wasn't coming that Tony was going to get riled up and call her. She knew she's so overtly manipulative. She knew this is how it was going to play out. And Tony would pay for her ticket. Fuck that one seat. What about my fiance? Fuck that one seat coach. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, don't think about coming. If you don't come, don't think about coming back around here when it's time to go through the estate. Cause I know you think Ma's got money buried in the house. He nailed that. You know, you can see sure. that you can see it on Janice's face. Like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. I have to go. All right. And then we remet, we're reminded again that she has a son named Hal. Tony says, "Is does, Hal want, does, does Harpo want to come? Him I'll pay for. And we see Janice get quickly emotional. Hal's on the, pay, uh, on the papers, Tony. He's a street person. So just a little reminder that Janice has a son. They mentioned this in season two, and Janice quickly shut up about it and changed subjects. But uh, Yeah, and, and that's not funny. Yeah. Like everything else about this scenario is hilarious. And then we bring up Hal and she mentions he's a street person. And I, I, I stopped smiling. I was like, oh, yeah, Janice does have like actual tragedy that she has like kind of buried mm-hmm. that we we occasionally get like a glimpse of in all the humor and ridiculousness that is Janice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And let's not forget, she came from the same place Tony did. So, you know, there, there's there's a lot of that shit buried in there. But she's coming. And uh, Tony confirms that the, we, we and we as the audience hear that the official that the, the 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 agreed upon lie for Richie April is that he's in the witness protection program. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the cover story. So it's not only is he shot having dinner, but as far as the the society goes, he's a he's a snitch. He's a rat. So really pissed on the memory of old school Richie April. <laughs> not that I feel for him, but so that's, certainly a guy that never would have ratted. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, he's watching Public Enemy in the middle of the night. We see the classic grapefruit scene. That's a classic uh, is, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, moment in, in cinema history. Just him slamming that grapefruit into her face. Apparently, uh, she really got hurt during that. Uh, did is she? The, is the legend? Yes. Yeah. 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 Which yeah. uh, let's let's have this. Let's hash this out quickly now, Jordan. What's okay. your beef with Public Enemy and and or and or James Cagney? No, no. I uh, I think James Cagney is a, a wonderful actor, and I think yeah. the pub the Public Enemy is a is a, a classic of film. I, I think it's great. Uh, I, I want to be clear. It has to do with its relationship with this um, episode, and I, I think the relationship is appropriate. This is oh, no yeah. one's fault. It, this is me personally. Mm. I just think uh, I think the Public Enemy is a classic, um, n- not only for its significance, just in the genre of the '30s gangster film, the pre-code '30s gangster films, but. Um, the movie's quite mean, hmm. quite mean to the viewer, uh, particularly with that classically feel bad ending. And uh, that in relation to this episode is nauseating. I actually think the public enemy is like grotesque. I, I think I, I oh, yeah. hate it. And much of the same way that I never want to see the public enemy again. I never want to see this episode of The Sopranos again. I think they're kind of I'm going to use the word sort of cursed 
They just make me feel bad to even think about them. I feel bad thinking about this episode, even for its funny moments. And I feel bad thinking of The Public Enemy, even though there are many scenes that are delightful and fun and charming. I think James Cagney is the man, and I totally see why that movie sort of made him. But when I think about the actual plot to The Public Enemy and that poor, I even hate just talking about that poor mom thinking her son is coming home and the rival gangsters have kidnapped the body from the hospital so he can never get well and delivers the corpse to his brother on the fucking doorstep. It's just grotesque in the same way that this episode is kind of grotesque and the same way that I curse the Soprano children for having a funeral awake for this woman that did not want this because she knew what would happen. And I feel, you know, I, Fuck, fuck Livia, you know, for, for what she tries to do to Tony and for the relationship that she's created with her children and her for all of her abuse and her monstrosity, but also fuck these kids for not respecting their mother's last wishes, okay? She wasn't stupid. She knew who she was. God, Livia knew who she was, right? Yeah. She did not want this. And look what happens. It's This is grotesque, right? This, this parading of Livia's corpse for mockery which is led by Carmela, and it's ultimately what happens in the scene that we're about to talk about. I, ha- I hate it. I feel sort of violated on her behalf in the same way I feel violated by the end of The Public Enemy. I just don't like it. It's feel bad. All of it feels bad. Mm. And, and, and I just, you know, I'm very old school I, when it comes to just, you don't speak ill about the dead. You just, it's not, you don't do it. I'm sorry. I don't care what Livia did. I don't care what she did to any of these people. Shut the fuck up. She's gone. What are you going to yeah. do? Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, that's very well put. I, um, I think that there's something similar in the way I feel about the way that that movie makes me feel for sure. Um, Public Enemy was also apparently a big influence on David Chase, and the original name uh, for Tony was Tommy, based okay. on this wow. movie. Um, and the people at HBO said, it's not going to be Tommy, what are you, nuts? And David <laughs> Chase, now looking back, says, of course, Tommy sounds ridiculous. But there's something indicative there. Also, in those days of Hollywood, even pre-code, there were unspoken rules, unwritten rules of these movies. One of them was the gangster dies at the end. That's what has to happen. Yeah. Caesar, little Caesar has to die. Scarface oh, yeah. has Cr- to die. Crime doesn't pay. Crime doesn't pay. Crime doesn't pay, right. Yeah. Um, and that so that was fulfilling, I think, essentially a kind of morals clause in the contract that Hollywood was making with America but in this episode, Tony doesn't die. He just has to drunkenly reflect on the fact that his mother never loved him in this innocent way that this other mother did. And they don't even... This episode starts off with Tony being racist, and then the family gives him shit about a bunch of crap that doesn't matter for the next 45 minutes. It's so weird to watch. It is very alienating. I agree with Jordan about that. That there is something funny... And compelling about this episode, it's well done for sure. But yeah, there's something off-putting about the whole affair. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and also, um, this is an apocryphal story, I believe. So I, I, I'm not repeating fact, but apparently when James Cagney's own mother, his own mother, the actor's mother, saw the movie The Public Enemy in the theater, she ran screaming from the theater. Wow. Uh, seeing that seeing that ending. And I thought um, that was an interesting little footnote because I was looking that up uh, as well. And you know what? I think if I was James Cagney's mother seeing that fucking ending, I think I would have ran screaming as well. Oh. Oh, fascinating stuff. I, I, I agree with everything you guys said. It is a sickening grotesquerie. Uh, the, 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 you know, I just happen to like the movie, but I, I, now, now I get what you mean. It just, 
it's not that you think it's bad cinema. It's no, that, no, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's it's wonderful. It just cinema. makes you. It's, 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 it, it should be watched by any serious student of film. It is just. It is makes you feel so bad. Yeah. So bad. And this episode of The Sopranos just makes me feel bad. I agree. Yeah, I feel the same. So let's move on because we're gonna we're gonna get into the scene that you were you were referencing there. But that's a great explanation for why we titled our episode today "Feel Bad Ending," because yeah. it's it's just there's just you don't you don't skip away from this one and go have lunch. So, <laughs> uh, but we get our first. Uh, let's talk about something that is also gonna make me smile. Ralph Cifaretto, first appearance. Joe Pantoliano, great actor playing a character named Ralph Cifaretto. We find out a little bit about this character in this scene. He, he was apparently, this is something the Sopranos does. And it's, I don't know if this is a criticism or a praise or if it just is, but every so often the Sopranos will drop a new character in just as if they've always been there. And they kind of do that with Ralph. It's a very like, wait a minute, who the fuck is this guy? Oh, all right. He's in Richie's crew. You just, you have to accept that there are like, probably 85 other mob guys in, in the North Jersey scene that we never are introduced to. You know what yeah, I mean? I was kind of fine with it. It didn't yeah. bother me. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I was kind of uh, bracing for it because you two had mentioned it uh, when we were recording the previous season. You had said, oh yeah, Ralphie comes in an, out of nowhere. But um, I think I interpreted that wrong. Uh, like when we meet him in the scene, it actually, it actually feels totally natural. Um, it doesn't feel like they try to like inception Ralphie into our brain or something like that. Um, it just hmm. felt like, oh yeah, we hadn't, we have not seen him previous to this because he hasn't mattered to Tony until this moment. Right. Yes, exactly. It's not that, yeah, I don't think they brought him in in some stupid way. They didn't contrive something. No, he just, this was, he just, this was fine. The cameras just weren't on him for the first two seasons is how yeah. they, they presented it. Yeah. And in fact, he's only distracting because he's Joe Pantoliano, who's a well-known actor. Otherwise the character's, you know, totally natural. Yep. So, Great to see him. I love Joe Pantoliano, Ralph Cifaretto. I'll reserve my opinion on until we get more of him. But we uh, get this little scene in the backyard. We get a little sense that there's some infighting over these garbage contracts. Ralphie, Alley Boy, two opposing crews. Ralphie makes a comment. He seems to indicate that he feels entitled to or at least wants the captainship over Richie April's crew. You can put in anybody you want over the crew, he tells them. You're a captain when I say you're a captain. And then it comes down to some third party creating tension, threatening to go to the EPA. And Tony's like, all right, fix this. But we got to stay out of the headlines. No more fires. So any thoughts on the first appearance of Ralph Zaffaretto? He's played by a big actor, so I don't feel like we're violating our spoiler policy by saying he's going to be around for a little bit. But Ralph Zaffaretto, Joe Pantoliano, I'm happy to see him. I I am too, and uh, one of the fun things that happens here right away is that, as happens with a number of the other characters, Tony doesn't know what to do with Ralphie's reaction to this whole situation, which, uh, instead of being sort of, you know, laden with the usual bullshit, seems uh, very real. Tony doesn't know what to do with that any more than he knows what to do with the platitudes. Um, then they go out in the backyard, and Ralphie is different. Ralphie's once again, uh, I guess now now he's now the, the consummate gangster who's just looking out for himself. And when he gets, quote, cute, Tony says, oh, you're going to get cute now with my mother lying dead. And it just struck me, and this relates to what I think Jordan has been mentioning, this kind of sick and uneasy feeling that to me, maybe in part because Livia was so total a poison, but the hypocrisy surrounding her funeral process is rank. 
everybody gets touched, even Tony, who is the first one to notice it. He invokes his mother when Ralphie gets too smart alecky. I was like, this is this is like mind bending what these characters are doing here. And then, and then it moves into the rest of the business. But it just struck me very much that this situation just highlights how full of shit all these people are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my first impression of Ralphie was that he's um, he's a little flashy and like kind of more put together. And uh, I'm going to use this word as a little odd, uh, kind of pretty ish. Yeah. Uh, you know, so uh, he's alluring in a way, um, in a way that doesn't quite fit, perhaps. Because uh, he's, yeah, gangster tough guy, but he's got like unusually nice hair. He dresses really nicely. He uh, acquits himself very well. He's a good speaker. He's very charismatic. And you're like, mm -hmm. okay, this is someone to watch. And then also, if you read between the lines, you're like, and this guy sets fires. Mm. You know, so it's like okay it's kind of a lot a lot to take in uh i'm interested i want to know more correct yeah they 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 put the hook out and you know it's a i feel like it's as good an introduction as any for a character that they're you know leaking into an episode that isn't really about him so they did a nice job and, and like you said jordan there's a lot that's different and stands out about him yeah. he's a little sassy he's a little quaffed he's he's good yes. yeah I, I'm hesitating to use the word flamboyant quite yet, but I think we may get there as well. Did we just get our first veto appearance as well? It was not our first. Uh, he's been around since the season two episode, Happy Wanderer, I believe. He was, okay. gam he was gambling and he's part of Richie's crew. Oh, so we, we have seen him. Okay, He's gambling with Artie. I know uh, he played a different character. In yeah, he one. he played a yeah. character that was at the bakery in season one, but he's around now and he's he's part of Richie's crew that uh, is now yeah. without captain. Right. Moving on here. I have to laugh at this, especially considering what our last episode was all about. While this very frank discussion about setting fires, beating people, the EPA, gangsterism, dumpster trucks getting lit on fire and blown up. The FBI is catching a lovely conversation about AJ ditching school in the basement. <laughs> yeah, good placement of that lamp, boys. <laughs> so I love that that is uh, not paying off yet for them. And that's what they're getting while a very frank discussion. Like if they had gotten the discussion out by the pool on tape, it would have been a home run. But nope, they didn't get it. So I just think that's fucking funny. What are you going to do? At least she didn't suffer. Janice shows up in sobbing uh, uncontrollably. Oh, of course. <laughs> and uh, we get this mimicked Godfather shot at Cozzarelli's. It's a very famous. He's going down to yep. meet uh, Bonacera. Oh bon bon yeah, Bonacera. And he's waiting there. He even says the line, I'll use all my powers, all my skills. And so <laughs> it's like, all right, don't go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. In an episode that features a classic gangster movie, we're referencing and honoring the premier, you know, grand operatic mob film. And Tony's just like, all right, we don't need any of that. Just kind of the speaks to the more blue collarness of, of the Sopranos universe as opposed to the one featured in The Godfather. But I like that they mirrored that shot and fans of the film will, uh, of course, note pick up on that. And uh, this is when they have this scene where Janice says, we got to do something. I want to, I wish to honor my mother. And Tony's just like, yeah, okay. There's a lot I could say right now that I'm not going to say. And Tony caves. All right, whatever we're going to, if we're going to do it, let's just fucking do it. Cozzarelli set it up. Send me the bill. Bad Fuck decision. all three of these kids. Fuck yeah. all three of them. Really? I'm yeah, sorry. Bad. Really? 
just yeah. really fuck all three of them. I, and I lay blame at Tony's feet too. It just should have been like, no, she didn't want anything, John. Sorry. No. Well, Tony's paying for Tony it. So says, fuck it. And let's stop talking about it. I mean, I think he's kind of similarly to actually how he felt often when he spoke to Livia. He just doesn't want to like, doesn't want to deal with this anymore. Let's just do it. And yeah, it has these, it has consequences um, for him and other characters emotionally. Uh, fascinating that Janice says that not having a service makes them seem like cheapskates after everything she, after all of her machinations to get a plane ticket home for this. It's also fascinating and so perfect that Janice shows up with all of her quote, California bullshit, end quote, because what all that is is a, a again, basically just a mimicry of grief and a mimicry of grand emotion and what tony as we'll come to find out is dealing with is the fact that he doesn't seem to be having at this point anyway in the episode a large grief at a sense of loss the first emotion he felt was relief when his mother died so janice becomes the perfect foil for what tony is dealing with yeah very well said and i, I want to thank tony and james gandolfini's delivery here for giving me a line that i use very often Especially when dealing, I look, I'm an actor. I have a lot of friends in California, but <laughs> I, I can't tell you how many times I have since said, no, 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 I don't want any of that California bullshit. <laughs> when she suggests everybody getting together and having a remembrance, I'm right with Tony on that one. It's like, especially for this person, it would be one thing if it was somebody that everyone was just shell shocked to the core and needed to grip, come to grips with. You sit around and chat about them, but you know, this is just a terrible idea from the get go. Even Tony knows it. Uh, but Janice is Janice, so we'll, we know where that's going. And then we get our first Melfi scene of season three. It's mm -hmm. great to see Melfi. And Tony is being very frank with her. I wished she'd die. I was happy. Relief flooded into me. He's being very honest. And then they talk about this concept of being a bad son. And I've mentioned before, Tony, despite all flaws, had, was a good son to Livia, at least what we saw. So... This guilt that he's feeling over wishing she'd die. Melfi explains to him that it's it's taboo, but it's not abnormal for someone in a situation with an elderly parent who is not in good health or even capable of enjoying their life anymore to kind of wish for some relief for them. Yeah. And she also, this is perhaps more important, tries to get him to verbalize what she did to him. And he's avoiding it. He's deflecting. He's let, she calls him out. You're letting her off. And it's important as a therapist and it's important for Tony, if he's ever going to actually get anywhere in this office for him to confront this directly and admit it and say it with his mouth. And he doesn't hear thoughts on this first scene back with Melfi. Yeah. This is more of Tony's avoidance that we saw um, towards the end of season two in particular, but um, it's just too hard for him to say it out loud. It's something that he can't quite uh, actualize even after, or maybe because of Livia's death. And it's uh, frustrating I'll say at a lower level of frustration, it's more sad, I think, mm. that, that he can't even get there yet. And I'm starting to lose hope as a viewer that he will. Mm. Um, because, you know, look, it's over. She, she's dead. You know, uh, I think he is almost has an excuse now to not come to terms with it. Yeah. And he drops our pull quote for the episode, which is, uh, so we're done here, right? She's dead. Paul, any thoughts on that? Yes, the reason I chose that for the pull quote is that I actually think it perfectly encapsulates 
both a way of thinking about Livia and this relationship and also reflects how Tony still needs help because of what he's having trouble seeing. It's not just about your parents. I say this as someone in therapy. It's not just about characterizing your parents or even how they've affected your life. It's about how you have to live your life now and what you're going to do. Um, I did feel for him. I was frustrated uh, with him in this scene. Both things were obviously happening. Uh, Tony started in therapy because of his panic attacks. He doesn't mention his panic attack. He doesn't mention Noah. Um, his mother is an overwhelming force. Her death has obviously cast a huge cloud over this whole episode. But as you mentioned, Chris, he won't say it. He's in denial about it. He can't verbalize it. I was I was impressed with Melfi. I thought it was the right move. I'm not a psychotherapist, but it seemed like the right move to try to remove this taboo. Like, okay, yeah, it's a taboo thought, but you don't have to sit with the shame of that. Let's, let's talk about it. Get it out in the open. But uh, ultimately, the line that he says at the end, so we're probably done here, right? She's dead. To me, actually, because that the very scene that he's saying that in so demonstrated how confused he is, how he's here and there. Uh, oh, she ruined my father's life. So she was this wench. He calls her a cunt in the scene. And then he... As Melfi says, you're letting her off. He seems to suggest that she didn't even know what she was talking about. Yet later in this very same episode, Tony will seem hugely angry, irrationally angry with Junior. So his emotions are all over the place. And he, because, as you said, Chris, he can't go there with his mother, he's still in a space where I don't think he understands what's happening to him. Yeah, it's sad. It's sad to me because the truth is, and people who have been involved in therapy or have a level of self-awareness about what life entails. You know, thankfully both my parents are still alive and no signs of slowing down anytime soon, but yes, in therapy, you have to deal with childhood issues and traumas and things that your parents have done to you. And certainly hopefully no one here has had anything as severe as what Livia did, but at the same time, your parent, your mother dying and, and Tony's mother dying in particular, like Tony's asks, you know, so we're done here, right? The work is just getting started. This, they can maybe get started now that Livia is out of the picture and he doesn't have to constantly put out that fire. And the fact that he doesn't see that just shows what an uphill battle this is going to be for Melfi. So we're moving on here and we get the scene with Ray Curdo. I want to talk about this. Uh, one of the captains, blatant snitch. There's always, it seems that we're getting to the point now it was Jimmy and Pussy and they drop it so casually, and Ray is just so committed to it. You, you, you got the funeral coming up. You want me to wear a wire? It, there's just always going to be a rat, isn't there? There's always yeah. another one. Yep. And uh, it's depressing because Ray seemed like one of these just kind of old, more old school. We don't know too much about him, but one of these just more old school guys has got a kid with MS, he said in season one. But other than that, we don't really know much about Ray except that he's just kind of this likable older guy, soft, quiet, not really involved in the day-to-day -day affairs, but he's snitching. Just contributes to the overall sort of queasiness of the episode, the sense of discomfort. And um, it knocks you off the high of thinking that like they might have gotten away from having a rat in the family since pussy is gone after season mm -hmm. two of being like, Nope, guys, sorry. You can't count that as a victory. They're always going to be there. Didn't you see yep. the first episode of this season? You can't get rid of the feds. Yeah. 
I didn't want to mention, I have heard some people at least have some initial confusion before they get to know the characters really well. I have seen some people when they first watch through the Sopranos confuse Ray with Patsy because it's two older guys, hair slicked back, glasses, like, and then they see something with Patsy later, like, oh, isn't that guy a snitch? No, it's the other guy, Ray. So just yeah. for those who are watching through the series for the first time, this is Ray Curto. He was one of the five captains of, of the family. We, he was in more of season one, I think, than season two. But someone who was on Tony's level before he became boss is wearing a wire and ratting to the feds. That's the point here. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, there you go. I just wanted to mention that because I know I, I have seen that confusion before online and both with people who have seen the series. Because these are both more kind of side characters, supporting characters. I, the side characters is not a flattering way to describe them. But we get the scene in the basement. All women are not cut out to be mothers. <laughs> you can say that again. They're going over through artifacts. She saved all Tony's stuff. None of the girls. Tony has a funny line about Harpo. Maybe if my father joined Cirque du Soleil, <laughs> I'd, have, I'd have been homeless too. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so the, the, Tony and Janice have this, uh, it's as sweet a scene as we're going to see between them, you know, for any length of time. They're kind of laughing and, and talking about it. And this, this, seemed, this just seemed like a very real family. And this is a thing that siblings do is go through their mother's belongings when she does eventually die. And yes, Janice was tapping the wall with the glass, yeah, some, some <laughs> nice sort of, I think, sort of symbolic foreshadowing there that uh, Janice is down in the basement uh, purportedly looking for Ma's things, but really literally picking apart the foundation of the family home, you know, uh, looking for the gold yeah. in the walls there. Uh, Janice is so disgusting, but also she's so hilarious and such a life force that I know she's by far the most annoying character on the show, but God, she's fucking interesting. Yeah, no, she's a fascinating character. And I love That's this. That's the reason scene. I make videos today. Yeah, she has a. She has a don't don't forget, <laughs> Paul, that she has a, she she has excellent visualization skills. <laughs> <laughs> I just wrote LOL after that line, like laugh. Like, come on, That's it's not something you're allowed to say about yourself, even if question it's true. <laughs> or, question for the panel here: Why did Livia only save Tony's things? Well, I could go the. I think the easy answer, the easy quick answer. Maybe this is right. Maybe this is wrong is that there's something about being the boy in an Italian family. That's just like, hmm. you know, that's just, it's just very important. He's the heir. He's the male heir. He's the, you know, it's a very patriarchal idea. I think that's perhaps it. I don't know. That's, that's, that's what I got. Do you have anything deeper there, Paul? Or is it just kind of an inter- one of those interesting little things? I don't. I mean, I had thought of that same possible answer, but Jordan's question is so interesting because I also thought of it. I don't think I wrote it down, but I was like, well, yeah, why did she? But what I wondered about, maybe this adds to the sad and kind of queasy feeling, is that there's no answer. And now both the parents are gone. All that's left is to ask these questions, which unfortunately, if we understand these characters to fundamentally be self-serving, what's going to happen is it's going to be a, a source of resentment. Mm. which there's probably no point in because you can't ask your parents anyway. They're gone and it's over. It's done. Yeah. The only thing I can offer, and I don't, I don't disagree with either of what you said. I think both those things are, are very true. Uh, both that he's the boy in an Italian family and also that it's just interesting to have the lingering questions of what this all meant. But I would say also that we've had it in the series now several times that Tony was kind of marked for specialness in several different ways as a young man, either in his you know, sort of pursued as maybe 
be a varsity athlete in having specialists to him that junior paid attention to in particular. Um, you know, I, I think what we could maybe get as a viewer is like, maybe Livia did have some strong feelings of love for Tony, but just never actually showed them just something that was deeply and privately held that would never come forward because she was not capable of expressing them in that way. And this secret finding in the basement was something closer to the truth. Of course, that interpretation makes things much more sad and only makes you feel worse. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like this conversation. Uh, so yeah, take, take from that what you will. I, I love that it's not, you know, she's dead. Ultimately, it's one of those questions that for the characters will never go and get answered. But uh, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe, uh, I don't want to get on a sidetrack here, but maybe we'll get more answers from many saints of Newark. Could be. So we'll see. We'll see about that. I'm excited. I think uh, that's going to be an exciting journey, but anyway, we'll, we'll talk. Maybe we'll have a separate side episode about that at some point, but Ooh, a special a special. Yeah. I like that. I have a couple ideas for specials. We're going to talk nice. about those, uh, but anyway, yeah. So then we get into the funeral sequence. This the, the back half of this episode is basically the funeral. You get a couple funny moments mixed with some very dark moments. Uh, we get Rosalie and Jackie Jr. showing up to the funeral. Uh, Jackie is very dismissive and has his mind elsewhere. He's a young punk and Rosalie apologizes. He's very disrespectful. Then we get Silvio mad at his cufflinks for this shit. I missed the Jets first home game. <laughs> Silvio mad. I'll take on, on my on my Sopranos any day. Angry <laughs> Silvio. You can drop in at any point and brighten things up. Uh and we get Chris and Furio getting completely fucked up. Right. With Adriana. Yeah. With Adriana. Uh, I, 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 I was, <laughs> I had a fun conversation with Lily about this. I can't tell if the combination of marijuana and cocaine would be awesome or terrible. Cause on one hand, it's like you either have all the energy of cocaine with all the paranoia of marijuana, which is a very bad combination, or you have like, the energy of cocaine with the chill of marijuana. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think they care. I don't know. <laughs> I think they're just like, we have Humping. to go to this thing for like eight hours. Let's yeah. just do whatever we can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anything to get through it. And I like the camaraderie amongst like the young family members here is just fun. Yeah. I wondered if what happened was they did that. As you said, Chris, they, they're mixing a couple of lines of cocaine with hitting this big bong. And then I wondered maybe if, if, and when they got to the, Soprano's house for the shindig, as we call it, they <laughs> wine and that. And th then when we find Chris and Aid uh, at the on the couch, they're very comfortable. Yeah, <laughs> notice they're like slumped in. They're like yeah. sinking into the couch. Oh yeah, they're not getting up anytime soon. I love that. I want to. We'll we'll talk about all that in a second. I have. And also, uh, Furio Constitution of Steel seems to be pretty much fine. At the oh point, yeah, he doesn't seem affected by anything, and I'm like, what affects this man? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's. We talked about this last season when we met him. He's fucking. He's yeah, such a he's, badass. He's like a superhero. He's good at everything. He's good at being a gangster. He's good with the. He's good with the women. He's good with the kids. He's good with the drugs now. Uh, yeah. There's just you, you, Furio is so unflappable right. and badass. If he were a D and D character, <laughs> like he'd have mostly twenties on stats. Like yes, he'd just be like, yeah, he's good at everything. Yeah. Yep. If I could quickly comment on these these quick prep scenes. I think they are funny, but they also, as Jordan mentioned, something pretty uncomfortable about this episode. They point, obviously, to the rank hypocrisy because these characters were there for Tony at the outset. We know how much you loved her, but to Silvio, this is absolutely a <laughs> an imposition. Uh, oh, yeah. Maybe, 
gambling again, but he wants to watch the Jets home game. Uh, Chris and Adriana, they're just getting ready for how to get through this. Um, Everybody knows, everybody gets it. But again, this is a culture in which you show this particular kind of respect. There's no question about it. So we get junior. He's legitimately hurt by this. Uh, They were close in season one. Yes. They fell out after everything with Tony, but even junior was urging Tony to make peace with Livia. And so junior, despite what happened and despite that their plan never came to fruition did have uh, does seem to have a genuine affection and seems legitimately upset here. Bobby gives Tony a nice hug. It's nice to see Junior. This is not a very substantial appearance. He does approach Carmela. Carmela is not forgiving him. She's behaving because it's a funeral and she's putting up a face for Tony. Uh, but uh, Junior makes that attempt. Yep. We get this new character. Folks, keep your eye on this guy. Assemblyman Ronald Zellman of the 8th Ward. This is a, kind of a guy Tony and a politician Tony has in his pocket. Uh, first appearance, not the last. And we bring back the Reverend from season two and uh, yep. get a very deliberate shot of Meadow watching Tony interact with him. Uh, we have to wonder if she's thinking about his hypocrisy there, that he's just kind of dealing and smiling and being oh, friendly. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, we 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 made I, I listened back to that episode recently and we made the point that when Tony and this Reverend do business together, a black man and a white man come together and they do not, the, the fruits of that, the fruits of that union do not bear uh, good things for no. people. It's actually quite awful what they're able to do when they come together. <laughs> she sees Tony interacting with these two beacons of supposed legitimacy. One guy on city council, the other one's a reverend. Uh, one's black, one Jewish, by the way. That's yeah. uh, Noah's makeup. Oh, yeah, it's um, very good. Perfect distillation. It's a perfect distillation of that uh, hypocrisy. Yep. I love the line Tony gives Junior. Uh, it's all that charcoal broiled meat you people ate. <laughs> Nobody told us till the 80s. <laughs> 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 he took it seriously. Um, and then they. Junior is so funny here. He's so funny. Yeah. Even his face at the end when Tony says, You better be finished and walks away. Just look at Dominic Cheney's in the face that he makes it. It was so funny. I was on the floor. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a cool scene. I like that scene because it gets us a little touchdown. It gives us a little state of the union here, a little halfway through our second hour of season three. Things are good. The economy is robust. Things are going well. I'll give you that, Junior says. So even at a subsistence level, money is flowing in. He's advocating for Ralphie to be captain. Tony is not trusting his judgment because three months ago, the rat bastard was the second coming. Why do you do this to me? And uh, Junior says, I'm still the boss of this family, but that is not the case. I don't care how much he thinks he is. It's, it's a title. It's, it's what well, he's the boss as much as Tony allows him or needs him to be at any given moment. And I forgive the slur here, but Junior says, you know, you get credit for shit you had nothing to do with. Chinks and housewives are betting football, uh, <laughs> which is, yeah. you know, uh, I, I just thought that was a very funny line that like things are so good that oh, I I, just, I don't know. It's it's it, do Chinese people not gamble? I, <laughs> is that a thing? I, I you know I don't know. Is that a <laughs> but 
Yeah, that that might just be an expression or part of an expression. Yeah, you know. yeah, I, I'd never heard that before the show, but I, I thought it was an interesting line to say the least. Uh, we get this cutaway while the funeral is all happening. Ralphie is beating up this Joe Zachary guy who threatened to dime yeah. them all out to the EPA. Boys, no more fires, and he sends out uh, a couple goons to rough him up with a bat. So, and again, uh, this kind of malevolent flamboyance that we see from Ralphie on a first appearance, just mm-hmm. even the way that line is delivered, like, oh, this guy's like, what a weird mix of things he is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's another, like, keep your eye on this guy. He's, uh, he's, he's, he's ready to make an impact here. Yeah. Uh, but it was fun, fun little, I mean, I'm excited to learn more about this character. Yeah. And the show has kind of conditioned you to look for, the problem at this point in the season, you know, it's just like, all right, new characters, what's going on. And you, of course your eye is just drawn to this guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You get a little bit more public enemy and then the, uh, the funeral where she's getting buried here. This actor playing the priest in this scene is a priest in so many things. I forget the name of this character actor. He's, he's, uh, and Paulie has seen him previously in season two. That's right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's right. He's Paulie's priest. Yeah. So he, he operates another church. Thank God we didn't have to get Father Phil in this episode. <laughs> uh, but uh, he's also the priest in Daredevil, this actor. Uh, so okay. I, I just thought that was like funny. Uh, I've, I've been, and I, which I actually watched recently. So I'm kind of like, oh, this guy is a good priest actor. <laughs> he does the thing. <laughs> yes. He also, he plays um, Pendleton, uh, one of the representatives from, I believe, Pennsylvania in the Spielberg movie, Lincoln. Uh, I think mm. it's like the last big thing I saw him in. He's terrific in that as a, a bad guy. Yeah. He's one of these character actors that just pops up all over the place. I'm going to get Yeah, he's name. great. He's terrific. I have to get his name. Hold on. Peter McRobbie. That's it. He's Scottish. Yep, that's it. Scottish American. But yeah, Peter McRobbie. I, I I always enjoy him when he pops. He's one of these guys you'll you watch like police procedurals or any other network show. Like he'll be he's a go to for them. He's a he's an old reliable kind of actor. I like guys like that who are always working and solid hand. It's the kind of actor most actors want to be, actually. It's just like I don't need to be a fucking celebrity. I just want to work all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so Janice approaches Svetlana and (laughs) in typical Janice diplomacy kicks her out of the house before asking for something that she wants. And Mm -hmm. if she had approached this differently, it might've turned out differently, but she's basically like, Hey, so get the fuck out. Oh, by the way, those records, uh, you know, (laughs) just, this is classic, like Janice, what the fuck? This is so just as she tries to charm Hesh into talking by saying that he and Livia went back to the pyramids. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, I love this scene. It's pretty brief, but I love the way it works. As you mentioned, Chris, it's perfect. The way that Janice is so sniveling and gross. And also Svetlana, maybe because of her cultural background, maybe just because of her attitude overall, she's usually pretty even. I wouldn't say cold, but even. And in, but in spite of, interestingly, in spite of how Janice is appealing to emotionality and sentiment, we because we know Janice, we know that all of it is self-serving bullshit, and she just wants the records for whatever monetary value they might have. But I think Svetlana actually is the much more sentimental one, because to her, this is to be respected because it's what Livia wanted. As Jordan yes. pointed out, her own kids don't give a shit about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice irony there. I like that. Mm-hmm. Get a couple other little quick touchdown scenes here. Hesh telling a funny joke at the funeral. 
and everybody stops laughing when Tony walks through the room. They're all just trying to get through it, but have to put up the front like, oh, yeah, we're supposed to be sad. You know, it's just it's it's exactly why Livia didn't want a funeral. Meadow giving the platitudes. Tony comments on her loss of innocence. Do we want to discuss the ghost at this uh, uh, shindig? I, I, I do want to discuss the ghost. If you pause your if you had if you didn't catch it and I, I think most people do catch it. But if you didn't catch it, pause your player. If you're watching on the HBO Go or HBO Max app, pause at 43 minutes and 33 seconds, and you will see in the mirror as Tony and Furio are talking, and Furio is talking about Survivor, which is a, the smash hit of the time. New, new, <laughs> yeah. you know, kind of launched the era of reality competition. And uh, as they're talking, Tony just opens a little hallway closet. And there's a reflection of Big Pussy in the hallway. And then Tony closes it and kind of looks in that direction as if he like, what the fuck? Yep. What a weird thing for them to do. And in such a subtle way. Yep. And perfect. Oh, he was the last person. And that's also what I meant, too. When I said uh, when AJ has that scene earlier, I said, AJ, there are ghosts in this hallway. Yes. Um, This house is littered with them. And mm-hmm. we have we we are beyond the point where. There is something in the Sopranos universe beyond the, yes. the, the physical. Yes. It just is. There's no denying it. There's no I, saying they're being cute. I wrote in my notes, and I, I mean this, and I'm going to mean this going forward. I know it. Uh, the, the show is haunted. <laughs> it, 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 I, I don't mean that to be funny. It, it, it yeah. is. The show is haunted. There, there is a supernatural element that is at play. It's used both for its symbolism and also for its literal symbolism. The show is haunted. There are ghosts in the show. It would also be one thing, a distinct thing, if, say, Tony were, I don't know, looking in his bathroom mirror and saw something behind him and then twisted, looked around, there's nothing, and then he looks back in the mirror and there's nothing. But that's not Tony's perspective when Big Pussy is in the mirror. That's our our perspective, perspective, isn't it? Yeah. So I think, yeah, there's something to that. I mean, I'm haunted by that image, I'll tell you that much. It's a a mind fuck. It really... To do it in such a subtle way and, and just also thinking from the show perspective, how cool it is that they reached out to Vincent Pastore. He's been written off the show for all intents and purposes. He's done and they hire him for the day. They pay him his day rate to come in and just stand there in a nice suit. He would wear at a funeral. He's dressed for Livia's funeral yep. in, in just standing there in the hallway. And Tony looks, but they don't make like a moment out of it. It's just slipped in. While they're talking, while Furio's talking about extorting Richard Hatch with a pistol. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, it's it's such a cool. But yes, it it, it, again, we're building something as this episode goes on. The sense of unease, the sixth sense. uh, And this just adds to it in my mind. So thank you for thank you for reminding me of that, Jordan. It was. uh, Yeah. The ghost of Big Pussy is at this thing. And and, and the show is to quote Paulie from season two. The show is dragging around a bunch of fucking ghouls with it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Speaking of ghosts and memories, we get this abridged version of the Artie Livia scene. Artie is remembering the last time he probably saw Livia alive was this. So it definitely stands out when you when somebody dies, you think about the last time you saw them. Yeah. And that's the last time Artie saw Livia. And, and it's rightfully kind of. It's something he tucked away at the time, but he he it's drudging back up because of the situation. And then 
Janice, we're going to come back to that in a second. Janice calls the remembrance, the circle of remembrance in this great oh, room. Fucking Janice. On what, this next thing works on so many levels. First of all, the song, her favorite song, she plays If I Loved You from Carousel, which works on the level. It's just an old show tune. It's something someone from Livia and Gener- Livia's generation would love. It is a beautiful song. It's Rodgers and Hammerstein from Carousel, the musical, but also that title, If I Loved You. God, there it is. Oh, the, the subtext being, I don't, though. <laughs> Can you just Carousel, imagine? Yeah. Carousel is also a show about a, uh, in the second half, the, the ghost of a parent coming back to visit their child to see if they can uh, right their wrongs. Um, yeah. So there, there, there's that choice as well. Yeah, it's an inspired choice of Livia's favorite song when you really think about it. And I actually didn't make that connection until recently. Uh, Lily mentioned it too when we watched it, but it's like, wow, that's a perfect song for this, for those, for all the reasons we discussed. Uh, so good job. But there's a guy who is would is exactly what I would do if I were at this party, F party, if I were at this funeral and I see people gathering to talk about Livia. If you look over Tony's shoulder, when, if I loved you is playing, there's a guy who like was, must've been upstairs in the bathroom or just looking around Tony's house, comes down, sees everybody's gathered and says, Oh, goes right back up. It almost looks like, (laughs) it almost looks like it's a mistake. And if we weren't talking about David Chase and Tim Van Patten, I would say maybe some extra wandered around on set and got captured. No, that's, that's absolutely intentional. Someone at this, at this event was just like, Oh no, I I'm going to, I'm going to go, Look at the bathroom again. Yep. <laughs> yep. I want no part of that. Janice goes off on this sickening thing. Uh, my, she talks about she's the reason I make videos today. Everyone, it's just so full of shit. Everyone sees through it. Everyone's just kind of got their eyes on the floor. Like, yep, this is happening. When is this over? It's it's awkward. It feels terrible. It does no one any favors, least of all Livia, the woman they're supposed to be honoring. And there seems to be kind of a race between Tony and Carmela as to who's going to put an end to this first. Yeah. Every, every interjection they have is just a little bit more hostile each time. Yep. Hesh is has a reaction forced out of him. She didn't mince words. That's all he's able to drudge up. AJ doesn't know what to say, and Carmela forces Janice to lay off. Uh don't let AJ talk about the things Livia taught him too long. Good God. Yeah. This woman, Fanny in the wheelchair. Uh, this is the woman Livia hit with her car in episode two of season one. Yeah. Who likely put in that wheelchair <laughs> by Livia. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, but she speaks up, you know, Livia could always, would always call if someone died. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, there is a character she's in the, I don't, you know, they don't, they don't actually address her name until much later in the series, but there's a character here that speaks and she's billed in the credits as three to five, seven to nine. That's her. That's the character's name because she never misses a wake. And she speaks mm-hmm. out and says, at least she didn't suffer for that. We can be grateful, which causes Tony at that point. He's heard it so many times. <laughs> yeah. He fucking rolls his eyes and walks out and has his scene with Artie out by the pool. So let's talk about this sequence real quick before we get into the meat of it. When Carmela breaks it up, I want to talk about Chris's rant. I want to talk about what happens with Artie. So let's get into it. Let's talk about this funeral scene, what it is, what it's all about. Uh, well, first, it's um, totally disgusting because it's, yeah. the, it's the actual antithesis of what Livia wanted to, mm-hmm. to have. She doesn't want anyone to remember her. She probably assumed that this kind of thing would happen. Carmela says as much later. Um, 
And it's uh, the height of Janice making other people feel uncomfortable. Everyone knows the unspoken rule. Actually, no, everyone knows the spoken rule. You don't speak ill of the dead. But what do you say about a woman that was almost unanimously reviled by everyone? Hesh probably does it the best here, right? Mm. She didn't mince words. That's something almost positive, right? Mm. Uh, between uh, brain and mouth, there is little or no interlocutor, whatever, whatever that exact quote is, right? Mm. Good job, Hesh. That's about as good as anyone's going to do here. Nobody else has much to offer. We'll get into Christopher in a moment, but, <laughs> you know, uh, nothing that Janice wants of this is going to happen. I think she just has wildly misinterpreted uh, the situation. You know? Yeah. Yeah. This California bullshit is not working out. Uh, so Chris does this diatribe. He's sort of rambling through it. Um, he's still high. I don't know exactly why they chose whatever he's talking about, about the people in DNA, it is the most implausible person you could ever argue not being unique. It is the most implausible idea that there could be two Livia Sopranos. So <laughs> that was funny to me. The Artie thing is funny and sad, of course, as Artie often can be. And it, it reflected something sad to me, of course, that that was the last time he saw Livia. I can see why he didn't want to go back for more after that visit. And... This whole sequence is so gross because, as Jordan said, it's Janice foisting this on everybody. So this scene seems like the worst of all worlds, both in how people project onto the dead what they're actually concerned with while they should let the dead bury the dead. And it still, at some level, reflects Livia and all of her dysfunction because all she did was spread misery. So, of course, that's what Artie is left with. Um, he's left with his anger for Tony because she told him about the fire. It all kind of comes full circle. Yeah. And Chris goes on. He never finishes. He just kind of trails off. Hesh, I love the little looks he's getting as people realize, like, wait a minute. What's 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 wrong with him? Is he <laughs> like Hesh kind of squints at him like, what the fuck am I, am I listening to here? Uh Carmela is slamming shots as this is all going on. It's almost like she's stealing herself to say what needs to be said, but she just needs a couple more stiff ones. She downs like five shots in, yeah. in the, yeah. In, in the course of this thing that we see blump, blump, blump one after the other. And Artie kind of threatens to go in and bring back up the bombing. And as he does, he's like opening his mouth. He gets um out and Carm cuts him off. This is such a crock of shit. And while there are certainly some lines that I look at and laugh, I mean, this is this is dark, dark stuff here. I I, I certainly laugh when Hugh says, "Who? Are, no, let her talk. Who are you, Minister of Propaganda?" <laughs> to he, even Hugh, who is one, maybe the most henpecked character on the show, <laughs> just this kind of abrasive, domineering wife. He, even he has to scream past it. We suffered for years under the yoke of that woman. Years. Ruined, I don't know how many goddamn Christmases. I don't even want to count. Estranged us from our own daughter. Just lays it out. Tom, Barb's husband, gives a here, here. So he knows it. That I'm sure he and Barb have had many conversations about that. Tony really resents that here, here, by the way. Yeah. That look off Tony is unmistakable. Mm. And Carmela makes the point that you're all making. is, And that's like, this is why she didn't want to be remembered. She didn't write her memories down for her grandkids because she figured nobody loved her enough to read them. And then all the fighting and the tension from beyond the grave, even Carmela says, you all, her children ignored her wishes. 
she knew there was a problem. Yeah. Uh, Carmela's right on here. I yeah. actually, I, I do resent Carmela a little bit just for making such a spectacle of it. Uh, but ultimately, ultimately it's what brings this grotesquerie to an end. Right. That's right. how I feel this, about this it. It's fucking, like this fucking masquerade, you know, what she says is so accurate. It's just like it needed to not continue as, as, as horrible as it is, the things she's saying, she's speaking the truth and it's unfortunate that it, she was driven to this, but like like you said, I, the, the grotesquerie needed to be brought to a close yes. and they needed to all just depart, tell their jokes, and enjoy the pastries from their new chef, Bobby Vasquez. Uh, and uh, <laughs> huge, huge props to Artie, even in his, I think, state of inebriation, and to um, uh, uh, Charmaine, to both of them for being like, okay, let's take our cue from Carmela. Uh, yeah. Pastry time. Yeah, exactly. That, that is the only way this can end. Yes, yes, correct. And also, I love the realization from Artie too. It, it comes full circle because the reason Artie ultimately doesn't make an issue out of this at the end of season one, the bombing when he makes it when when Livia tells him, is he tells Father Phil all this coming from a woman who unfortunately had very little good to say about anybody, mm-hmm. and he's reminded in this moment who the source is of this information. And he sees that she spews nothing but misery. Everyone is left angry and broken in from, from a a memory of Livia. And he clams up because he's just, Carmela shuts it down. He's not going to add to it. And the secret gets swallowed again. And Artie's going to just move on with their life and they're all going to have pastries. And in the episode, yeah, good. Exactly. Good for him. I love Hugh DeAngelis so much. Yes. Yes. Um, he looks like an Italian peasant and uh, <laughs> he loves all of these characters and most of them don't deserve it. Anyway, it, so this scene is powerful to me for a number of reasons. I agree with Jordan that there's something kind of gross about it, even as I do admire Carmela putting an end to the charade. And she mentions the children. She mentions the example that she's setting, which I think is very important. Mm. again the question of the hypocrisy here and laying it all out something else that's telling is who is doing the talking and who is doing the hear hearing uh at the beginning of this episode this kid noah was essentially told that he's not welcome at this house he's not welcome as a possible candidate of this family because he doesn't have the right stock he's not italian he's from this other group he's from this other background these characters who have married into the Soprano family are of the right stock. Carmela's family, she comes from an Italian family called DeAngelis. Uh, Tom, who married Barbara, his last name, I believe, is Giglioni. How do they feel about what they married into? Mm. They vocalize it. They say it out loud. So Tony's just completely full of shit on this question. Because, it. I mean, A, it's racist. B, it belies what is problematic and destructive in your own house. Hmm. Yeah. Well said. And the episode closes with Tony finishing up public, his viewing of public enemy and um, Gandolfini is such a master here. He's he's, he gets me so worked up in this moment. And you see his, his heartbreak. I'm having my Jordan Hugh moment. I'm tearing up as I'm saying this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you're seeing his heartbreak as he watches this 
grotesque scene from the public enemy spoiler alert for those who haven't seen this near hundred year old film now i think it's actually over 100 years actually as as, as of this recording because close it's close but uh no 30s almost 100 years i think that movie was 1930 or 31 yeah. it was early yeah so this nearly he's tony's watching this nearly 100 year old movie and uh, but spoiler alert, the mother gets delivered. This, the mother is getting ready for her son, Tommy, to come home. He's been injured by the by the rival gangsters. And she's cheerfully making his bed and getting ready for him to come home. My baby's coming home. This loving, sweet mother, the quintessential opposite, couldn't be more opposite of Livia if you designed it that way. And yeah, the gangsters steal his body from the hospital and he dies and they deliver him at the front door and just drop his body off. And Tony is just watching this, imagining what it would be like to have a sweet mother who loved him and cared about him. And I couldn't help but think how different would his life be if Livia loved him. And we're led off by this haunting tune, the uh, theme used for the movie, which is actually a song called I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles from 1919, I think. And I wanted to read a chorus. Uh, the song actually has lyrics, not in the um, not in the movie soundtrack, but it, uh, it does have, it, there are lyrics to it. It's a very dark and nihilistic song. It's not one of these like old jaunty tunes. The chorus is I'm forever blowing bubbles, pretty bubbles in the air. They fly so high. They reach the sky. Then, like my dreams, they fade and die. Pretty uplifting stuff, boys and girls. Uh, oh, there's, yeah. another, <laughs> there's another verse here. When shadows creep, when I'm asleep, to lands of hope I stray. Then at daybreak, when I awake, my bluebird flutters away. So, I mean, this is, it's almost as, as dark as Robert Frost's death poetry. And it encapsulates the nihilism that Livia left and yeah, her body's dead. She's gone. But all we have in the Sopranos universe is what kind of ghosts you leave behind and what you leave to the people that are still alive. And it's this, it's this seed of nihilism and it's just so sad. It's such a dark, <laughs> not feel good ending. Any, uh, any final thoughts on the end, the point of all this, and how you felt at the end of this episode. And yeah, final thoughts on Proshai Levushka. Um, yeah, even talking through the episode with you guys for the last hour plus, um, I don't really like the episode any more than I did at the start. <laughs> uh, I'm appreciative of, of your company and, and your insight, both of you, in, in talking about it. But um, this episode just makes me feel awful. Um, yeah. and, and the ending of the episode, Tony watching that horrible, mean disgusting scene from the end of the public enemy yeah you, i mean you you keenly feel that moment like this reunion between the gangster and his mother will never happen it will never be neither in that film nor on this show and tony's rumination on that is extraordinarily sad it's dark it's gross it has that meanness to it it has that queasiness to it um so i, I think david chase was was wise to pair those things together it just forces you to sit in that dark place with him and where the, the, the place where this episode brings you is very ugly. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's 
certainly not going to be our last really ugly moment on this show, but I, I think it's the ugliest to date. Yes. And it's um, it just sits in a real bad spot for me. So it's not an episode I would be in a hurry to rewatch. And when we do our season three retrospective, um, this is not going to be one I'm going to be in a hurry to come back to for for anything. Yes, this episode is very tough to watch. It's um, I think it's got a lot of rough, dark moments. I think actually in particular, this ending, not only because of the graphic and grim nature of the movie that he's watching, because I feel like he's stuck in this moment at the end, um, even as he takes a pause from his drinking to cry a bit. He's reflecting on this mother's love that he never had, and there's no reckoning with it. She's gone now, and life will go on, um, as opposed to the way that the pre the the code of old Hollywood was followed, wherein the gangster died. Now the gangster has to live and he's got to figure out a way to move on from this. And this is an episode that has a lot to do with history, a lot to do with this specific period of history when his mother was young. But you have to reckon with that history. History can't just sit there. History is not just a monument. You have to wrestle with it and talk to it. And that's the only way that you will have a future that's worth a damn is if you reckon with the past. And I think Tony might recognize that at some level, but he can't vocalize it. He can't bring it to fruition. And he's going to continue to act out in weird ways, like he did with Noah. He's going to continue to pass out if he doesn't recognize this going going forward. Yeah, well said, guys. It's it's To me, it's like... This episode, in a way, is is lancing a boil. You have this character, Livia. We have the unfortunate reality of Nancy Marchand passing away between seasons, and the show had to deal with it. You can't just ignore that. If she's, you know, so uh, and the worst thing you could do is just have her dead die off between seasons. You got to at least have an episode. So while it is, I agree with you, Jordan. It's a sick episode. It's an episode that makes you feel queasy. It's not one I'm going to rush to watch again. It's not one when I have a drunk text with our friend Quinn or with Paul or whatever. And I'm like, I'm going to watch the Sopranos tonight. And uh, it's not an episode I ever flip on just for joy. Oh no. Yeah. And it, it never will be that, but you know, that said, yes, I appreciate the art of the episode. I appreciate that something put to film can make me feel the way this does. And I appreciate that they had to do a Livia episode. And is there any better testament to the character that of Livia, the writing of Livia, the performance of Livia from Nancy Marchand, that the most darkly, one of the most darkly disturbing and upsetting episodes of the whole series is this one honoring her. That's Livia's legacy for the Sopranos. It's Livia's legacy on the show. You feel sick, you feel uneasy, and nothing feels like it's going to be okay. <laughs> so that's that's the unfortunate reality of it, but I appreciate it on an artistic level. To end this on a slightly better note, because I want to leave our podcast listeners feeling better than they might having watched Pro Lavushka. What are you looking forward to? Because in my opinion, the next episode, Fortunate Son, season, uh, episode one is kind of like a playful montage getting us back into where all the characters are. Episode two is dealing with Livia episode three, fortunate son to me is where season three really kind of starts in earnest. So what are you looking forward to from season three based on what we've been given these first two episodes? 
Well, for God's sake, I just like a few laughs. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> I, I want to get back to some gangster shit, and I, I think we're about to because Ralphie Cifaretto certainly seems like an interesting character. Also, again, being the novice of the three of us, um, I don't remember season three all that well, so I really don't actually know where this is going. Hmm. Um, so I'm just I'm just interested to see more. I, I need to get away from the Livia situation that we're in, in episode two. I'm just looking for. I need to see some action. I need to see shit go crazy for a little while. That's what I need. Hmm. Paul? Certainly wanting to see more from Ralph Cifaretto and, and some among the other gangsters. I liked the Patsy stuff a lot in the first episode. I'd like to see what happens with Chris because I know I think we teased his being made at the end of season two. Uh, and also, sir, I wanted to see what was going on with Meadow at college anyway. And now I really want to see what's next. Yeah. Because as we talked about, that's the, the whole sequence is intriguing. It's also is it also is very funny. Um, just briefly, when Meadow comes back and she and Tony are arguing a bit, she says that because of the way that Noah is acting now, uh, Hunter thinks he's a snob. And I thought, oh well, heaven forbid <laughs> that somebody thinks this guy's a snob. Like the first thing he said in the show was, "Cagney was modernity," you know. <laughs> Yep. Again, you know, Jordan has pointed out before that the show hates the like super like intellectual uh, academic class very much. And Noah's hates them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to getting to know our new characters. I want to see more Ralphie. I want to see uh, I want to see some Patsy Parisi. I want to see I, I want a jovial scene at Satrials. I, I agree. I want like, you know, the guys hanging out, having having a laugh. I want some Pauly Walnuts. Uh, F- Fortunate Son is going to bring a lot of smiles to this crew. I think I'm excited to cover it. Uh, so we got Fortunate Son coming up next. This has been a hell of an hour of Sopranos that we forced our way through. And uh, <laughs> we're going to uh, I, I have a feeling that uh, we're going to really enjoy season three. We just had to get through this darkness here, but uh, by the way, it couldn't be a more different episode than Mr. Ruggiero's neighborhood. What a crazy start to season three. I see why they aired these together. Cause good <laughs> Lord, these two, either one of them individually would have been like a killer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, guys, I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini and I'm Jordan Hugh. And we will see you next time for fortunate son. Goodbye. Little Livia. Scaling schemes, I'm building castles, castle. born anew, there's a few, just like a sweet butterfly, butterfly. And as the daylight is dying, they come again in the morning. I'm forever blowing bubbles, bubbles, pretty bubbles in the air. They fly so high, nearly reach the sky. They light my dreams, they fade and die.